This is The Feed. From Markham. From Richmond Hill. From Vaughn. From Aurora. East Gwillimbury. Whitchurch, Stouffville. From everywhere you are. This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. On the show, Let the Games Begin, our chat with a local Olympian inside York University's Markham campus and vaccine equality. But we begin with the dollars and cents. As if we don't have enough on our plates with this ongoing pandemic, brace yourselves, we are now feeling the effects of inflation. Definition, inflation is the decline of purchasing power and is the sustained upward movement in the overall price level of goods and services in an economy. What? In other words, food prices are going up as is the cost of filling your tank. Lori Campbell, Director of Client Financial Wellness at Bromwich & Smith, has been helping Canadians stay financially afloat for decades. She joins us now with some pretty smart preventive measures as we all dig a little deeper to put food on the table and get where we need to go. Hey, Lori, so good to be with you again. Thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much, Anne. So why are food prices on the rise? Well, we know there's a, a problem with pandemic fuel supply chains, and so we're having a hard time getting the food to the grocery store. And if the food's not going to the grocery store fast enough, the prices are going to surge. We also notice that there are empty shelves, and so that makes you sort of think, well, if their supply is low, it means that the grocers are going to raise the price. Is that kind of a, a you know, economics 101 theory? Yeah, for sure. Like, it's supply and demand, right? The supply is not there. Demand is still there. I mean, you go to the grocery store, and there's certain things you just can't get anymore. And when they do come in, you grab it. You don't care about the price, and that's part of the problem. What about panic buying? You know, we saw that at the beginning of the pandemic. Are we going to see that again? Well, you know what? Let's hope not, because, I mean, there was so, you know, you Back in the beginning of the pandemic, you go to the meat section, there was nothing there. You go to the toilet paper section, there was nothing there. I don't think that will happen again. I think things are beginning to open up, and hopefully this pet, you know, this panic buying will not, you know, reoccur during this time. It's a tough time financially for a whole lot of us. What will be the impact, do you think, on the increased food prices on families and on their budgets here in Ontario? It, it's it's terrible because a lot of people are not making the income they were prior to the pandemic or, you know, they're not even working because we know that 20% of businesses have failed or are on the verge of failing because of the pandemic. So Ontarians are really struggling right now. And so they've got to find smart ways of managing this budget. So let's talk about that. And let's figure out how you do your grocery shopping without going broke. What are some of your best suggestions? Oh, there's so many great suggestions. And first of all, you know, Make sure that you go at off-peak time so you're comfortable, you've got time to shop, you're not waiting in line, you're not frustrated. That's number one. Leave your kids at home if you can. They often grow and grab food that's more expensive and not nutritious. Look at, you know, the cost of the product that you're buying. Comparison shop. Look, don't look at just eye level, look above and below because often, uh, you know, brand-made products are put at eye level. Yeah, another thing is to find out where you've got your go- your covers before you go. So many people end up overspending because they realize they didn't realize they already had three of those peanut butter jars in their cupboard. So, 
what about the staples that you do find in your cupboard before you go shopping? What are you looking for? You mentioned, you know, you might have three jars of peanut butter, but what should you be looking for? And if you don't see that, what should you be buying in order to have enough staples? And staples, is that's a really good way to go about stretching your dollar. Exactly. So, you know, always keep a lot of, for example, rice and pasta on hand. Those are fairly cheap purchases and they can go a long way. So make sure you've got staples like that. Obviously, flour, if you bake, uh, sugar, and those types of products. But make sure you don't overbuy. There's nothing worse than having a big bag of kidney beans uh, in your basement, like me, uh, from last year, because I thought that I would eventually need them because there could be a shortage. Well, they're still sitting there, so that is a waste of money. Lori, should you take note of what you are throwing out from your refrigerator? Absolutely. You know, we, we end up throwing out, you know, so many perishables, such as fruit and vegetables, those types of things that don't last very long. So make sure you check the dates on the products you buy as well. If you're buying milk and it's on sale, what is the pro- what's the expiry date on that? It might be on sale for a reason. And if you're not going to go through it that fast, then it's a waste of money. So take a look at what you have on hand. Look at the expiry dates on it and make sure you meal plan before you go shopping so that the, what you do buy, you have a use for, you have an immediate use for, and you know it's not going to sit in your fridge until you go shopping next time. Uh, in which case you might toss it in the, in the bin. We're always told that fresh is better than frozen or canned, but in this case, can you get the same nutrition from frozen vegetables or fruit, let's say, or from canned fruits and vegetables? Right. You know, that is that is a, a good question, but certainly mix it up. I mean, buy some frozen, buy some fresh. Don't buy pre-cut vegetables or fruit. It's going to cost you an arm and a leg. So make sure you buy, uh, you know, it, it in in the whole form. But, you know, if you if the cost is too prohibitive, then you can have some frozen and some fresh. And that way you're mixing it up. You feel like you're getting the nutritive value out of it. But at the same time, you're saving money at the grocery store. We all know that for most people or some people, meat is a, an important part of a meal, particularly for dinner. Uh, should we be looking at cheaper cuts of meat? Should we be looking to go perhaps vegan for a while in order to try to save money? Well, yeah, absolutely. What, there's a couple of things that you can do. You know, buy in larger packages, freeze some of it so you have it for another few meals that you might have. Second is buy cheaper cuts of meat. You know, it's it's just so costly right now. Meat is, is one of the things that's really soared as far as the cost goes. And maybe have a vegan or a vegetarian meal once or twice a week so that it does cut down on the cost and it's actually better for your health. So it, it works. It's a win-win. Let's talk shopping prep 101. First of all, should you make a list? Oh, absolutely, Anne. And when you make that list, think about meals that you're going to have. So if you're going to make a stew, for example, what do you need? So you need carrots, you need, you know, potatoes, et cetera, et cetera. So make sure that's on your list so you know exactly what is involved in that meal. Check your cupboards to make sure you don't have the products or, or there's certain products you may already have. That's number one. Uh, number two is to find out um, whether you have everything that you need on that list. Because what happens to people is that, as you well know, I mean, it happens to all of us, we end up coming back from the grocery store thinking, oh, I forgot apples, whatever the case may be, because it wasn't on that list. So make sure you have a fulsome list that is geared towards the meals you're going to have and it's geared toward what your family needs. Should you snack before you grocery shop? <laughs> Depends on what you snack on, I guess. <laughs> sure, you know what? Don't go on an empty stomach without a, without a doubt. There's there's absolute um, science behind the fact that if you go on an empty stomach or when you're thirsty, you'll buy more products that are easy to eat or you buy more fluids. 
<laughs> that are really easy like you, to drink. So just make sure that you go when you're not hungry, you're not tired, so you have the time to shop and prepare yourself for what you need to do when you're out there and you're not just waiting to get in line so you can rip over that bag of chips as soon as you get you know get to the car. <laughs> you sound like you uh, may have had that experience, and I certainly have. So, Lori, cash versus credit card. Cash versus credit card. Yeah, you know, we're living in a credit card world, but we're, we're also living in a debit world, so you don't have to use your credit card necessarily unless you're getting points and you pay it off every month in full and I mean, I understand why people use their credit cards to get points, and there's all these you know great kickbacks with credit cards. But it's never a good deal if you can't pay it off in full each month and it's not within your budget. So it doesn't matter whether you use cash, your debit card, or credit cards, but you always have to ask yourself that question. If I was paying cash for this, would I still be buying it? Right. Good point. What about the frequency with which you visit the grocery store? Lots of people end up going every couple of days. Does it make a difference if you were to, to wean yourself off of it and go just once a week or once every 10 days? Would that make a difference to your pocketbook? It probably would, and I think that it's wise fodder. However, I would say that some non-perishables uh, or perishables would be something you may have to buy more frequently than 10 days. But also, and think about the cost of gas. I mean, that's soaring right now, absolutely crazy. And if you're, you know, getting in your car every couple of days and going to the grocery store, well, that's hurting your pocketbook as well. So when you look at that planning, buy as much as you can, you know, to keep it as fresh as you can for as long as you can before you have to hit the grocery store again. And speaking of gas and getting where you need to go, yes, it's, it costs a fortune to fill up at the gas uh, station. What are your suggestions on how we can possibly save money while gas prices are so high? Well, you know, essentials. When you're going out to, to the grocery stores or anything else you need to do at the same time, you know, bulk it in so that, okay, I've got to go to the grocery store, then I need to go to the drugstore, whatever the other issues you may have. So bulk it all together because, you know, it's not just the cost of gas, there's insurance, there's maintenance, it's all going through the roof. That's, that's number one. Number two, people are working from home now. And, you know, that does help save at the pump if you don't have to go into work every day and you're driving. So that's another quick way to save money is work from home if you can. And, and more importantly, walk. Walk wherever you're able to. You know, you don't always have to hop in that car. You can always get out and get some exercise and do some errands on the way. Does it make sense, dollars and cents, to go to various websites to find out where the cheapest gas is? And my problem with that always is you may be using up a lot of gas trying to get to the cheap gas. Yeah, and you might be sitting in line with, the, you know, 50 other people waiting at the pump to get that gas. And it's at that point, it doesn't make sense because, let's face it, if it's cold out, you're going to be having your car, your ignition on, and you're wasting gas trying to get gas. So, you know, sure, if, if it's within, you know, a reasonable distance to you and you're you're not going to be, you don't know you're not going to be lining up for half an hour to get gas, then by all means, check out the sites. But just Keep in mind those those particular things. And does it make sense to just put a drop or two of gas in or fill up your tank? Which is better in terms of making the gas go further? Well, I mean, I think fill up your tank when you can. I mean, let's face it. There are times of the week, you know, heading towards a weekend, we know gas prices tend to go up for a long weekend. They've, you know, in the past gone up although that's not as, as prevalent today. But certainly if you fill up once, then you're not running out to fill up again. And you're, you know, it's a time versus money issue as well. And, you know, if you're constantly running on empty, that's a bit of a stress and you're constantly trying to fill up. 
it doesn't benefit you really at all. You know, you talked about maintenance and insurance and that sort of thing. When there are issues, we've, you know, we've got to go where we need to go, a garage that we trust. But insurance, should we continue to shop around to get a better price on insurance? Absolutely. You know, if you shop around, you get a broker looking for you as well. Chances are you can you can shave off hundreds of dollars on your insurance if, you know, all things are equal. You know, you haven't had any accidents or any, you know, pulled over for any reason. So absolutely shop around for insurance. And also, if you're working from home, your insurance may go down because you're, you're you know, they look, they factor in the distance to work in those types of things. So if that's been factored in and, and it hasn't been uh, reviewed, it's worth the review. What percentage of a family's income yearly does the food represent, does gasoline represent? Wow, good question. Well, I know, for example, that Canadian families will, families will pay an extra $1,000 almost for groceries in 2022. So that that's a significant amount of money. And, you know, what percentage should it be? Well, we know that, you know, uh, that should be no more than 15% of your income and, you know, your housing should be no more than 30% for your income. And going down the list, Obviously, groceries are not something that you can stop purchasing, but at the same time, you can cut thousands, well, hundreds of dollars for sure off your grocery bill if you, if you play it smart. The Bank of Canada, it's almost a lock that in March they're going to raise rates. What is that going to do to the overall scheme of things when it comes to budgeting, when it comes to families' incomes, when it comes to debt, when it comes to buying food and purchasing gas? It's going, to, it's going to be a hit because, let's face it, for housing, those individuals that are renewing their mortgage or those individuals that are on a, a variable rate are going to be hit immediately. And also individuals on any type of very variable rate line of credit. So that's going to be a hit because and when debt becomes a hit and that becomes more expensive, then the cost of everything else uh, or the ability to pay for everything else is diminished. And we know that the infl- because inflation is going up, interest rates are going to go up. So this is a double hit for many people. And as we say goodbye, Lori, what is your best advice to our listeners right now about how to survive this increase in inflation and which means food prices and everything we're doing is going up? Live simply. I mean, that's really my best advice. And, you know, don't go, there's no, if you can't, if you don't have a need to purchase clothing, you don't have a need to purchase items, just don't be tempted in purchasing. You know, stay off online shopping. That's one of the biggest uh, areas that people get tripped up on because it's so tempting and it's often so impulsive, you know, so it's the impulsivity that we need to remove from our lives that will help us stay the course with our budget and manage it better. In other words, save money, live well, if you can. And I really appreciate your great advice. Lori Campbell, thank you so much for joining us on the feed. My pleasure, Anne. Thank you. After the break, the dynamic, diverse, and innovative communities of York Region. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region.
welcome back. Earlier this week, Ontario Science Advisory Table released new modeling showing that Omicron is plateauing, but hospitals will continue to bear the brunt of this vicious wave of COVID-19. The table also put forward some pretty stunning projections. Unvaccinated individuals are six times more likely to be hospitalized if they contract the virus than those who are vaccinated and 12 times more likely to end up in the ICU. So why are people still hesitant to roll up their sleeves, especially in high-risk neighborhoods and among vulnerable communities? Dr. Akwatu Kenti is chair of the Black Scientist Task Force on Vaccine Equity. He is our guest now on The Feed. Welcome to The Feed, Dr. Kenti. So glad you could join us. My pleasure to be here. So a headline earlier this week, the truck convoy misinformation on vaccines is harmful to racialized communities. What are your thoughts on that headline? Um, it's absolutely true because uh, many racialized communities are underprotected, which means they're undervaxxed, and they're overexposed. They can't work from home. They have to work um, in settings that require them to take public transit. Um, they're frontline workers. They're workers in retail. They're workers in hospitality and tr- public transport. So, um, and healthcare. They're actually also workers in healthcare. A lot of nursing aides, PSWs, home care workers are racialized, and so they're overexposed. And because of the under-vaccination rates, that means that they are more likely to get severe COVID and end up in the hospitals or the ICU. So what was the messaging then that was concerning to you and members of your task force when it came to what was being said by some members of the truck convoy last weekend? Yeah, the message that um, we should, we should you know, it's too much, to, you know, we should take our feet off the public health metal to the pedal or pedal to the metal because, you know, it's too much. It actually is not too much and that it's actually working and we need to keep up the public health efforts, the public health measures to build confidence in the vaccines, to engage with communities, to, to convince people of the need to take the vaccines so that they take it voluntarily um, and embrace it when they take it. We don't want to force people to take vaccines. We want people to understand why a vaccine saves your life, why a vaccine is essential to allow us to um, reduce or or stop interrupting the education of our children, because school disruption actually has long-term consequences, just like long COVID. Dr. Kenty, what is undermining the confidence that members have of the Black community when it comes to vaccination? Is there still great hesitancy within members of the Black community? There is still substantive um, hesitancy or mistrust, although I must say it's been diminishing over time. And um, we've worked through many of the arguments and, you know, still some people say they need more time. They want to see if it's safe, if fully safe. Um, They're still not completely convinced that um, enough black people were participants in the clinical trials. um, And so they just want to wait and see. you know, I t- try to remind people that Martin Luther King used to say, why we can't wait? Now we have people saying, we need to wait and see. We actually need to get protection as soon as possible. There are people who are convinced that um, there are nefarious forces at work trying to undermine black DNA, black fertility, black life expectancy. And they've pointed to some ex- egregious examples in the past, which, you know, rightly so gives cause for pause, cause to, to you know, to be... Concerned that once again, um, black bodies may be at risk. 
Mm. But we explained to them very clearly that um, such is not the case and the evidence that indicates why it's not the case. The, the numbers of people of African descent who were involved in the development of the vaccines from clinical trials right through to regulatory approvals um, and vaccine safety, who are monitoring the vaccine safety, monitoring the effects, and not seeing any racialized effects whatsoever in terms of um, allergic responses or what have you. So we could have very solid confidence that um, the vaccines are safe for all people. Do you think the message is really getting out there? I have some statistics from high-risk areas, uh, areas of vulnerability in communities. For instance, uh, only 39% of some residents in the York University Heights area have received a third shot. 26% in the Mount Olive neighborhood have been boosted. Only 26%. And 77% of people living in the Weston neighborhood here in Ontario have had just their first shot. That Those are pretty stunning numbers. And what are, what are those numbers telling you? Yeah, so third dose child vaccination is a real issue. It's a hill that we have to climb. But one of those neighborhoods, the one with York University, the M3J postal code, is almost 90% on second dose, first and second dose. And that was a hill that had to be climbed. I mean, it wasn't an easy sell. And we were able to get it up to 90%. M9W, um, Northwest, West Humber, Clairville, another um, neighborhood or postal code with lots of racialized um, um, members or residents. Also, first and second dose at the 90% level. So um, we have succeeded. And the proof of that success is in these postal codes. And it's also sort of the foundation to keep going with what works. It's just that um, with child vaccination, there are real issues. We have people who are adults who are vaccinated themselves who are still um, unsure about vaccinating their children. And so we just have to give them time and keep up the, um, the messaging and provide them with the science that supports child vaccination. And just say, you know, the sooner you do it, the better off your, ch- your children will be. But we understand why you may feel the way you do. Um, and, you know, one of the things I think is very important um, for messaging is um, like giving people space to make a decision because what's happening is there's a lot of stigma towards the unvaccinated that's growing. And it's a source of real concern because that stigma is also or is or will be a barrier to good decision-making. And we don't want that. We want to sort of... We have enough barriers as it is. You don't want stigma to be another barrier. And, you know, stigma, in other words, is discrimination when it comes to something like this. So what when you're talking about children aged 5 to 11, the, that, that group uh, is a little bit low on the number side in terms of vaccination. But it, does that have anything to do with racialized communities? So, you know, when it comes to children... Um, that's especially, that's a very sensitive a- area with black communities and black parents in some of these low-income communities that have been at the receiving end of child welfare decisions that sort of led to the disproportionate representation of black children in child welfare. So that sensitivity is there. So you have to be very, very careful how you discuss the decisions that need to be made in the best interest of children. So as not, so not to usurp the authority and the, um, the parental responsibility 
um, that's that's on the table. You know, it's their responsibility. It's their, it's their the parents. They love their children more than anybody else could ever love their children, and so on, so on and so forth. And we don't want to sort of question that or undermine that. We just want to point out that you don't want your children to get long COVID because long COVID brings consequences. We don't even know with respect to mental health as well as physical health. Why do with that? School disruptions have long-term consequences for graduation, long-term consequences even for life expectancy. That's what the data in the U.S. shows. So the more we can reduce or eliminate school disruptions, the better it is for our children. The more vulnerable the neighborhoods are that our children live in, that means the less likely they are to be able to navigate homeschooling, especially because their parents usually have two and three jobs and are unable to provide that essential school support, which parents who are better off still find themselves having a hard time doing. So that's a second issue. And then, of course, um, we need to protect our immunocompromised loved ones, and that may be friends, that may be family members. And the only way to do that is to vaccinate everyone so that you know that you can have a wall around your immunocompromised for whom vaccines may not even work um, as well as they could. Dr. Kenty, you are the chair of the Black Scientist Task Force on Vaccine Equality. That was started last year. You presented a report in June of 2021. The recommendations that you made, are they being implemented today? The recommendations that we made with respect to strategy, with respect to engagement, with respect to um, equity, um, you know, have been given a, a lot of um, play, uh, have been used, have been referenced, have been incorporated into this messaging and the strategy of our vaccine engagement teams, our vaccine ambassadors. Uh, and, and we're very proud of that. And um, uh, we continue to work with them to sort of address issues as they arise and tailor our messages accordingly because, you know, there's a constant stream of misinformation that's um, emerging on social media that has to be addressed and, you know, we're doing our level best with that. The global vaccine equity issue remains um, the elephant in the room. Dr. Kenty, what is your final message right now to the Black community when it comes to vaccinations and their importance? When it comes to vaccinations, we are currently overexposed to COVID because of occupation, underprotected because of under-vaccination. As long as we need to live, to make a living, to work in some of these occupations where we have to take public transit, we have to be exposed to many different people through all walks of life, we have to go that extra mile and get vaccinated now. If you already have your first dose or your second dose, please don't hesitate to get your third dose because that third dose will boost your immunity system against the variant Omicron. Dr. Akwatu Kenti, Chair of the Black Scientist Task Force on Vaccine Equity, thank you so much for joining us on the feed. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Black History Month on 105.9 The Region. Listen live at 1059theregion.com. This month marks the 26th celebration of Black History Month in Canada. Kevin Frankish with a local union supporting the diversity of its members. This is Black History Month, and we are hearing all sorts of messages of support from uh, politicians, community leaders, and other groups. But 
From a carpenter's union? Yes, the uh, Carpenters District Council of Ontario is marking Black History Month in a special way as well. And uh, to explain exactly why and what they're doing is uh, Chris Campbell from the union. Hi, Chris, how are you? I'm well, how are you? I am fine. So why is the Carpenters Union investing themselves into Black History Month? Well, the Carpenters Union um, consists of... um, um, so many cultures and races and and ethnicities of, of people, um, and we've been around for 140 years. And so this year, our vice president, our Canadian district vice president, you know, is putting out a statement with, with my support and and with my working with them. And uh, I'm so proud of that because I, I as far as I know, this is the first time. Um, the head of our, our um, district council or Canadian council has ever um, put out something like this, and I'm so proud of of, of this move by um, our vice president Jason Rowe. So, how will you be marking Black History Month this month? Well, we've we've always been, you know, um, in our district council, supporting, sponsoring, participating in, in local events. This year, it's a little bit hampered because of COVID nineteen. Um, we were part of, participated in, sponsoring in the Black History Society's um, official kickoff of Black History Month. What we're doing at the the district council. This month, um, February, Black History Month, is we're hosting a a a, a small open house, a open house where we're going to be inviting council generals from the Caribbean, whether it be Jamaica, Barbados, Trinidad, um, Saint Kitts, um, uh, Antigua, Barbuda, you name it. All these council generals are going to be visiting our office. On on um, the eleventh of the month, I think also to the the, port, the council general of Portugal, and we're working on trying to get the council general or a few other council to countries to come and visit us. And we're going to have our leader Tony Enutsi. We're going to have our our, our our president Mike York. We're going to try and get a few um, federal representative to either zoom in or drop in and tell us about um, what. What their kind of, what their plans are for um, um, helping to alleviate the work shortage, the labor shortage of our industry, and how these council generals, these countries, these representatives can help, right? And we're going to talk about the processes. We want to show and tell them first, and the process of becoming a union union member. What's required academically? What what um, what's happening with the industry? You know, or forecasts of the industry, and just give the information to them first. And and let them let them let them um, network and and be able to identify with the carpenters district council of Ontario a little bit more. So when they go back to their country or their local community in Toronto or Ontario, they can spread and 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 and, and be a little bit more um, informed as to to how we can um, work together to um, alleviate this shortage. This is just one avenue. This is what, you know, there's several avenues of folks that are coming in through high school, through people who are changing careers, but this is what we're doing for 
Black History Month on the 11th. I think what's really uh, interesting here, Chris, is that for a lot of new Canadians who bring with them, you know, the skills for carpentry, um, but they may be completely unaware of what it's like to work in an environment where they, they, you know, depending on where they came from, of course. Uh, but coming to this country for the first time working, well, hey, I, there's laws to protect me. Uh, there are rules and regulations about, about work safety. Yes, absolutely. And that those are some of the points that we we're probably, or we will, it makes sense to discuss, right? The rules, the law, the, 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 um, what's, what's expected of them and, and to let them know that their, their rights won't be trampled upon and to let them know that you will be represented by a union that takes care of their membership. So, yeah, we, this, and this is something that I, I feel very passionate about. I've been doing this, reaching out to all the different community. But, um, but um, this month, it's Black History Month. And so, um, you know, this is what we're doing special for Black History Month, yes. And you're trying to get the message out there to all of your members on job sites right across the province. That's it. So we're doing that. We're getting the message out on social media. You know, uh, we're, you know, the, the Twitter, the, um, the, the WhatsApp, uh, the Facebook, the, the LinkedIn, you know, everything we're reaching out on. We're reaching out to a lot of the local community newspaper, like, like, um, the, 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 the career of Canada Dez. Canadez, I think I got it right. I don't want to <laughs> mess it up. And the local Portuguese newspapers. We're reaching out to the Caribbean newspapers like the Share, mm-hmm. the um, Caribbean Camera, the Caribbean News, uh, and, and many more. Um, um, uh, African newspapers too. And I saw a few subscription of, of, of ads to them. And, um, and, um, and um, we did a, a press release where we sent out um, the information to, uh, I was told, about 70 different um, um, news organizations. So we're hoping that they'll run it. Um, and and, um, and the message from our Vice President, Jason Rowe, will be right up front and, and stating, look, the Carpenters Union has the open door policy we're 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 here we welcome everyone and we're we're doing everything we can on our on our side to 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 meet the the labor shortage that we have now and we will have in the future why because of all this billions of dollars of infrastructure work that you hear are be, is being announced, um, you know, every couple of days, right? So, yes, we're doing everything on our side, on our end, to, to, to meet these these uh, work work requirements, work demand. And so um, we tie this in with Black History Month. We're, we're saying, yes, yes, this used to happen. Yes, Black people were not, were not eagerly welcome to the union um, decades ago, but things have evolved in our construction industry. Yes, two years ago, right? There were uh, there were nooses being found on site. We're not saying it's it's never it 
it it um it it will never happen but we have um responded we have um stated where we st- our position on it we've taken action on the folks that did it and this is some of the things that we're doing wow. going forward to to show that Toronto Ontario Canada is a welcoming place for everyone all right, and and you know what? I'm glad to say we're neighbors. Uh, your main, your head office is uh, just down the street from us here on Roundtree Dairy Road in Woodbridge. Uh, so, if people want more information, thecarpentersunion.ca. I've been speaking with uh, Chris Campbell with the uh, Carpenters District Council of Ontario. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. Take care. Enjoy. Black History Month on 105.9 The Region. Listen live at 1059theregion.com. Construction is underway for York University's much-anticipated Markham campus. Tina Cortez now with an update. And the -the state-of-the-art 10-story, 400,000-square-foot campus will welcome its first students in the fall of 2023. The new campus will increase access to high-quality, research-intensive, and inclusive learning experiences for students across York Region and beyond, offering opportunities for students and faculty to collaborate directly with employers, startups, and community partners. At the helm of York University's new campus is Gordon Binstead, the newly appointed Deputy Provost of Markham Campus. Dr. Binstead, thank you for your time today. Oh, you're very welcome. So what will the Markham Campus offer the community? So the, the Markham region, as, as you know, is one of the fastest uh, growing regions in the country. And, and that region is, is highly diverse, both in, in ethnic background and in, and in commercial endeavors. And, and the Markham campus really is, is an extension of um, all of, all of the, all of York and is hopefully to offer programming and research that will revolve around the areas of technology and entrepreneurship and really uh, work with the local community around uh, driving innovation that helps uh, the society more broadly, but also the region. So let's talk specifically about the programs. What programs will students be able to take at the Markham campus? Well, there are a variety of programs, but I'd say the the, the themes, as I said, really are around um, uh, technology and and entrepreneurship, and the idea is to provide students with sort of innovative, relevant, uh, job-ready, job-ready academic programming that allows them to to find a place in areas like creative technologies, entrepreneurship, management, digital technologies, new media, um, financial technologies, computer science. So, in that space of of, sort of tech, uh, as a space where technology meets entrepreneurship and then gives value to society. And will students have an option for flexible learning? Absolutely. I mean, the the uh, if we've learned anything over the last two years with the the uh, the COVID pandemic, it's that you know there are new ways that we can offer um, uh, opportunities for students uh, both to learn inside and outside the classroom. And so, the goal is to have as much as possible students being able to have flexible formats for their learning, uh, small class sizes, and then also as they move outside the classroom, be able to get opportunities for uh, workplace experiential learning out in the community, and that then brings the uh, community into the campus. And when will the university begin to accept applications? So applications um, will open in September of 2022, um, and then the first class of students will be um, 
showing up to the campus in, in September of 2023. Um, for any parents or students who are interested in sort of understanding more as those programs come online and, and, uh, and begin accepting applications, they can obviously go to um, uh, yourq.ca slash Markham. That'll give them sort of the, the ever-changing and, and evolving programs and what they can learn and, and uh, how they can apply. Now, what about for you personally? What are you most looking forward to in your new role as Deputy Provost of Markham Campus? So, as you may know, I came from um, the Okanagan campus of the University of British Columbia. And one thing I learned there was in building a new campus, just how much of a fantastic um, dynamic opportunity a campus can be. And in this case, we're a new campus of one of the largest universities in Canada, in New York. And so what amazing new ways can that, um, that the brand and the, and the offerings of York be brought to a community? And how can we uh, adjust how we offer things? How can we give value to the broader world? And in doing so, making the, um, the boundary between the campus and the university as porous as possible. I mean, in my case, I would like to have it be where you know, it, it's an arbitrary line. At what point do you walk in from the community, enter the campus, or do you leave campus into the university? I want that to be arbitrary, blurry, porous, so that the community feels like it's part of the campus and vice versa. So that's, that's a broader goal for the campus, and that, I find that really exciting. Um, I also find it really exciting to have a campus where um, the community has a large degree of ownership of that campus, so that when a community says, you know, as a community, we really want this type of opportunity for our, for our children, for our community, and being a campus where you're small enough and nimble enough, you can actually pivot and do that kind of um, uh, programming, you know, for the community, for the for the community in which the campus is is offered. And I mean, this goes right through to you know our partnerships with um, IBM and working with um, our program called uh, Y Space, which is a, an innovation um, hub. And how can we collaborate with, you know, the, the nonprofit sector, the tech sector, the industrial sector to make the best possible um, opportunities for the community and for the students? And then how can we also make it such that um, the campus is, is a, uh, a really accessible place, whether it be for, um, you know, people of various religions and multi-faith spaces or for, um, for learners of Indigenous descent? And making sure that everybody feels comfortable in the space, and as I said, is really part of uh, the broader community. And how do we do that? That's to me what I find interesting is is how we do all those things in a in a brick and mortar university. York University is known as a global leader in interdisciplinary teaching and research committed to the public good. How will the Markham campus support that philosophy? Yeah, I mean, the, the, so as you said, York is is really uh, the core mission of York is having you know a, a positive impact on the world through through knowledge and and as we've learned more and more over the last uh, many decades, you know, interdisciplinary knowledge created in interdisciplinary teams has that much more impact than that coming than those pieces of, of research or innovation coming from a single sector. And so, in the case of the Markham campus, um, you know. Unlike you know, the Markham campus is a is a is a new entity, and so we're not stuck with the structures, both policy, political, and physical, um, that require us to mirror ourselves on you know Oxford and Cambridge. And so that allows us to have classrooms and learning spaces and maker spaces 
and uh, digital learning areas and gaming studios that allow, you know, in the case of a gaming studio, it could allow, you know, the computer, the software developer to meet with a fine arts um, artist, to meet with um, a creative writer doing the narrative of the game, to meet with um, a, a business student to figure out a business case. All those things give you that, that product and give all those students the best case. And you can make the same argument in um, in an in, in industrial setting or in uh, in a business setting. So that's the goal: is to, is to give both the students and the applied areas outside the value of bringing these teams together, and for us to mirror those teams inside the university. If our listeners want to learn more about York University's new Markham campus, how can they do that? The best way for them to to learn about them is to go to yorku.ca/markham, and that will give uh, community members both updates on the building of the space and, and where the where the, the campus structure is going, um, opportunities for partnering, but also opportunities for um, becoming a learner at at uh, the Markham campus or at the Keogh campus. And there's also something special planned for the Family Day weekend. What can you tell us? Yeah, our York University team is actually going to be at the Markham Civic Center rink on February uh, 19th, that's Saturday, um, from 10 to noon. And uh, I'm hoping that people will come uh, join uh, myself and my York colleagues for some public skating um, over the Family Day weekend. Um, I'm hope, excited to say that, you know, myself and other members, we will be there. And, and uh, I'm hoping to say hello to people from the community and we can share some free hot chocolates and, and other giveaways, perhaps some, some gloves and some, some toques and gloves. And uh, people can enjoy some skating while we're uh, talking about the new opportunities at the Markham campus. Sounds like and again, fun. If people want to learn, and if people want to learn more about that, um, they can learn it at yorku.ca slash Markham. Dr. Gordon Bin said, thank you for joining us on the feed. We appreciate your time. You're very welcome. When we come back, Team Canada at the Games. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. Jim Lang is next with a Vaughn resident who also happens to be competing at the Olympics. It is the Beijing 2022 Olympics, and a big part of Team Canada's contingent is the figure skating team, especially with no NHLers going to the Olympics, and maybe one of the ones we'll keep an eye on, both on TV and on social media, is someone proud of York Region, a part of the York Region Skating Club, and lives in Vaughn, Roman Sadovsky, joining us on the feed. Roman, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? Good. It's very exciting, and, and I'm, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's because of COVID and everything going on. It's one of those things where we need these Olympics. We need to get an escape, and we need to watch you and your fellow athletes and fellow figure skaters do your thing at the Olympic platform in Beijing. Yeah, for sure. I mean, even for us athletes, we've been training hard through all this, all these COVID things and COVID restrictions and lockdowns and then opening up and then lockdowns again. But, you know, we persevered to the end goal, which is the Olympics, and it's coming up real quick, and hopefully everything is more or less smooth sailing from here. Along with your fellow Canadian Keegan Messing, you make up the Canadian contingent for men's singles. When did you get to the point where you took that step to become an Olympic-level skater? Um, I think it was just a slow a culmination of, of things throughout the years, and um, going to the Olympics was just a huge goal of mine since I was a kid. Um, I would say for the most part, once I was around... 15, 14, 
Mm-hmm. That, that would have been four years out for my first like um, age eligible year for Olympics. That's when I really started to like train really hard. And uh, when I was 18, that was my first year eligible. I wasn't quite ready. I wasn't quite, I wasn't quite the skater that I wanted to be or that I needed to be at the Olympic Games. So then I took another four years after that to really zone in, hone in those skills. And now that I'm 22, I'm ready to go. Speaking with Roman Sadovsky of York Region, going to the Olympics, a big part of the Canadian skating team and men's singles, known as Romsky in social media with his fantastic YouTube channel. We'll talk more about that in a second. Uh, when you get to the Olympic level and you're skating, the edge work, the athleticism, the fitness is next level. The one thing I always find that separates some people like you, Roman, getting to the Olympic level is the mental strength and being able to deal with the stress and anxiety, these massive competitions to even qualify for the Olympics. How much of that was a learning curve as it was physically getting your skating program to the point where you could compete in Beijing? For sure. I mean, so when it comes to like the physical and technical stuff, that's kind of, like I said before, like a combination of things, right? Years of experience and slowly honing it in. But uh, the true mental challenge really presented itself this year and this whole Olympic season. It definitely hit different than any other season that I've had before, um, mainly because the criteria from Skate Canada to um, qualify for the Games, it wasn't based on one competition. It was based on multiple different competitions throughout the whole season. So we were being watched the whole time. <laughs> and uh, the point was to really show our abilities and consistency throughout the season and uh, I definitely struggled. I uh, had a little bit of a hard time earlier in the season to kind of to keep focused and really stay on track. But um, eventually I picked it up and going into nationals, I was in a really strong position. Now, to, to stay on track, to get to the point where you needed it, is this something you do internally? Do you get sports psychology help? Do you get family help? What do you lean on to get to these tough times? I kind of lean on more so myself and my family. And I also made the, a little bit of a personal decision to kind of take a break off social media a little bit um just because there's a lot of noise and a lot of buzz around the olympics and it's really good that there's a lot of attention towards the olympics it just became a little bit um stressful for me <laughs> and i wanted a little bit of a, of a break of it so i think that helped me a ton and i just was able to really stay focused on on training and really trusting the training whenever it came to competition your free program is chasing cars by snow patrol is that music you personally picked Did you and your coach your collaboration or how did you get to that point where you're yeah. like this is the song for me so this is actually a really funny story um my uh, choreographer mark play he's out from uh, vancouver he was doing a lot of uh, research on on music and trying to find a music piece for me because he already knew that he was going to choreograph that long for me and he came forward with this piece and he also presented the idea of composing on top of it so we had a, a composer maxime rodriguez from france to actually uh, mix and compose on top of it so it became a very personal piece um it's a piece that no one else can really use because it's custom made and it's uh really really cool in that way and in the end of the day our whole team really really liked it and um, i really enjoy skating to it now, when, you, when you're in Beijing, um, um, is, there, is there certain comfort foods you try to search out, a certain music you try to listen to as you get ready for your comp days and your workout days? How do you get in that mindset where you're a peak performer when you need to be? Yeah, so uh, usually I'm okay. I'm a pretty easy um, eater. <laughs> I kind of like all kinds of food. Uh, um, I kind of follow just a basic guideline based on like whatever my nutritionist kind of suggested, but I'm not on any strict uh diets per se um when it comes to music um i really just like pop i like k-pop a lot 
um, EDM, um, all kinds of music, honestly. But if I really want to get like riled up and pumped up, it's definitely a lot of EDM and K-pop before an event. Roman, the one thing that stands out to me is, amongst all your dedication on and off the ice to being a figure skater, is your creativity and skill on social media, your YouTube channel. Uh, it's very impressive. When did you when did you have this outlet? Because your YouTube channel is not your typical thing you see for an athlete. It's very creative. <laughs> yeah, so I kind of, obviously every artist kind of draws from somewhere. <laughs> so uh, I'll use that as an excuse. But uh, yeah, I've, I've been following a lot of different like YouTube channels, um, kind of vlog-based channels. So kind of channels where um, an individual will kind of uh, let the viewers in on their life or what they do on the daily and that kind of thing. And I kind of really like that because you can really relate to the person. And um, I decided at some point, I think I was maybe, I was 18 at the time. So I think that was probably the, uh, the first Olympic year that I was going for. Um, that's when I decided, you know what, why don't I let people like kind of see what it's like on my end? You know, what is the training like? Um, what are the things that I deal with? What are my thoughts on competitions and stuff? And it's kind of a really internal part of that. And um, I thought it was a really good way to connect with my fans and um, the whole skating community. And at the same time, I'm I'm really big on like filmmaking and um, just cameras and technology. And so I was able to put that hobby and, and put it all together and it kind of manifested itself into what it is now. I know people follow you on Instagram and Twitter um, at Roman Zadovsky, but it's Romsky, R-O-M-S-K-Y, Romsky on YouTube. And the one thing that I like about it, Roman, is I mean, so many athletes, no matter what discipline they're in, only show the good things in their training. But you also show things when you're struggling through things to get to a next level and working on things that don't always work out. Right. So that's the thing is I want to be as like transparent as as possible. There's obviously a a degree of secrecy when it comes to like my uh, training habits and like certain tech technical stuff because I don't necessarily want to reveal everything. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But, uh, (laughs) But for the most part, I do like to show like, you know, I think it's good for the new generation also to see that um, you're not always perfect, uh, not not by a long shot, and it's a normal uh, training process. And I think that makes it more relatable, and people enjoy seeing that more than, I guess, perfection. To the degree people get bored of that. Well, you can't get more York Region than Roman Zadovsky. Went to Bill Crother Secondary School, skates to the York Region Skating Club, lives in Vaughan. Uh, a lot of people in Vaughan, in Ontario, around Canada, cheering you on at the Beijing Winter Olympics. We can't thank you enough for doing this. All the best in your training. All the best in Beijing. And uh, and, and, and again, Romsky, R-O-M-S-K-Y. Follow him on YouTube. You won't be disappointed. Roman, thank you so much for doing this. And uh, go kick some butt in Beijing. Thank you so much. I'll try my best. Take care now. If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.